0: doing here (laughs) hi kids I'm Bob the tomato or perhaps you know me better as a somewhat uptight British asparagus or maybe you'll know me as a cantankerous decorative gourd (laughs) or a really old grape who doesn't know why he's on a show about vegetables or maybe you just know me best as the voice that says, And now it's time for Silly Songs with Larry, the part of the show where Larry comes out and sings a silly song. Thank you. i never, I'd never been at a church with whatever that is. I'm not... <laughs> It's like we're on Gilligan's Island. This is when they had church. Remember the episode where they had church on Gilligan's Island? No, because there never was one. But if there had been one, it would have looked just like this. And the worship leader could come out dressed as Marianne or Ginger. I'm voting Marianne. She's more faith friendly. Um, Hi. (laughs) Hi. Nice to see you. Thanks for coming. I like, I'm a big fan of your state. I, I'm from uh, the suburbs of Chicago. But my great grandfather, actually, my great 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 grandfather immigrated from Germany to Toledo, Ohio. And uh, my great grandfather was a hothouse farmer. He had five acres, I believe, under glass in Toledo in the 1920s and was growing much of the tomatoes and cucumbers needed by the lovely metropolis of toledo ohio uh, and then in one thousand nine hundred and thirty one sold the hothouse farm and bought uh, a two hundred acre farm just up into near Jackson, Michigan, Uh, actually near the Speedway, if you know where the Speedway is, just a couple miles from the Speedway. In fact, if you're there, you can hear the cars on race day. Um, And we still have it. We still have about 100 acres of the farm left. My dad lives there, and my uncle lives there. And uh, every 4th of July, my sister comes in with her family from Southern California, and my brother's in Minneapolis, and we're in Chicago, and we all spend a week at the lake, at the farm in Michigan, which is my kid's favorite place on earth, if you've ever... <laughs> my, uh, my uncle is a huge uh, U of M fan, but my grandfather... My grandfather liked the Buckeyes, because... <laughs> I know, it was an issue. It was a major issue. He was a, uh, who was the coach that punched the guy? Was Woody Hayes? Was it? Yeah, anyway. My grandpa really liked him. It was, it was the source of much family fun. But my, my, and my in-laws are from Minnesota. Uh, I grew up actually in Iowa and then moved to Illinois. Uh, so my wife is from Minnesota. So we pretty much cover almost the whole Big Ten, except Wisconsin. I think we've got, yeah, Anything Big Ten, I just cheer automatically. Oh, and my mom's from Nebraska, and they're now in the Big Ten, too. So, you know, there you go. Have you ever had a dream? I want to talk to you about dreams. Um... We're, we're big on dreams in America. I don't know if you've noticed, but when, when our kids are born, we immediately take them to Disney World and say, you know, this is where dreams come true, kids. And, and hold on tight to your dream and never let go of your dream. And a dream is a wish a heart makes. And when you wish upon a star, your dream comes true. And we grow up with this culture of dreams, we think you think, oh, it's just for kids, though. And then you turn on the TV, and there's an ad for a bank, and what does the bank say? Your dream is out there, we will help you finance it. And then an insurance company comes on and says, we will help you protect your dreams. We're here to protect your, just like our whole economy is fueled by dreams. Have you ever had a dream? And if your immediate response was, yeah, I was at my high school reunion in my underwear... It's not the kind of dream I'm talking about. See, unlike many words, the word dream has more than one meaning. According to Webster, in fact, there are four accepted definitions of the word dream. Number one, a series of thoughts, images, or emotions occurring during sleep. That's a type one dream. Number two, an experience of waking life having the characteristics of a dream. Number three, something notable for its beauty, excellence, or enjoyable quality. And number four, a strongly desired goal or purpose. So, that whole high school reunion underwear thing was a type one dream. At least I hope it was. What I was referring to is a type four dream, a strongly desired goal or purpose. Or to put it another way, a deep longing. Have you ever had a dream? I have, but unlike many Americans, my dream wasn't about money or success or fame or fortune or winning a gold medal in figure skating, which would have been fun, but I didn't have the ankles for it. Uh, My dream was about impact. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted my stories to to be able to tell people about the love of God. I I wanted to change the world through America's VHS decks. And as of spring of... 2002, my dream was coming true. VeggieTales is something that on paper makes no sense at all. It is a series of children's videos where talking vegetables reenact Bible stories. Try raising money with that pitch. <laughs> it was created in a spare bedroom by a guy who got kicked out of Bible college after only three semesters for failing chapel. A guy who had no money, no connections, and no idea what he was getting himself into. A guy that was also an extreme introvert, which means that what you're currently viewing is an act, and I'm going to go pass out after this. (laughs) And somehow, quite unexpectedly, it became not only the best-selling Christian direct-to-video series of all time, but ultimately the best-selling direct-to-video series of any kind, of all time with more than 60 million videos sold to date. In 1999 and 2000, VeggieTales videos outsold every other kid's property in the world, including Barney, Scooby-Doo, and Pokemon. But the VeggieTales phenomenon went beyond the sale of videos. College kids and high school kids embraced Bob the the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber. VeggieTales parties sprouted up on college campuses, uh, first at Christian colleges, like you might expect, but ultimately we heard of them happening at places like Texas A&M and the University of Michigan. A CNN poll found VeggieTales among the top 10 most watched videos on college campuses nationwide. Larry the Cucumber t-shirts were spotted at dance clubs in downtown Chicago. And perhaps most astonishingly, VeggieTales was directly parodied in a two-minute animated spoof on Saturday Night Live and referenced by at least four different episodes of The Simpsons. VeggieTales was an enormous success. It was my dream come true. It was a great story too. Small town kid from Iowa makes it big, changes the way the world thinks about talking vegetables. (laughs) The story of VeggieTale's success is a story that we love to hear. It's the story that People magazine came to my house to hear. It's the story that Time and Newsweek wanted to hear. It's the story that the Wall Street Journal wanted to hear. But it isn't the story I'm going to tell you today. I'm going to tell you a different story. And it's not really a story about veggie tales at all. It's a story about me. Like many of you, I imagine. Um I grew up deep in kind of the Christian subculture. I grew up in church. My mom was the choir director of our small evangelical free church in Muscatine, Iowa. My dad was the Sunday school superintendent. We were there every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night prayer meetings, potlucks, church picnics, AWANA clubs. If the church was open, we were there. My great-grandfather in Omaha, Nebraska, was one of uh, the country's first radio preachers. He went on the air in 1923, right after radio was commercialized, and preached every Sunday morning on the radio until his death in 1964, at which point his radio show was the oldest, longest-running radio show in the country. He also started a Bible and missionary conference in northwest Iowa, the Okoboji Lakes Bible and Missionary Conference. Been there? Hey? Uh, no. And for the first, actually, Beulah Beach. Anyone been to Beulah Beach? They had a, a similar Bible missionary conference. Okay, my grandparents were actually both at Beulah Beach working in the kitchen before they were married in like 1920. Um, what was I talking about? Why am I here? This is Gilligan's Island, everyone. No, I had a story. Oh, <laughs> and for the first 25 years of my life, I never missed a year at the Bible conference in Iowa. So growing up in church and at Bible conferences, there are certain Christian-y phrases that sort of stick with you. Phrases like, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. They're even better when they rhyme. But that phrase really hit me as a kid. If the only things that mattered were the things that I did for Jesus, well then, I needed to do things for Jesus. I was a good kid. I wanted to be a good kid. I wanted to do what I was supposed to do. So that was very clear. But there was another Christiany y phrase that, that really stuck to me in childhood. God can't steer a parked car. Mm. They might not have been scripture, technically, but they sure smelled like it. So, if the only things that mattered were the things I did for Christ and if God really couldn't steer a parked car, well then I didn't want to be a parked car. I had to start doing stuff. I, I had to start pedaling. I, I had to get busy. I discovered at a fairly early age that I had some ability to tell stories. I remember entertaining my family at Thanksgiving dinner and thinking, hey, that was fun. I like making people laugh. Um, when I was nine, I made my first animated film. and By the time I was 14, I figured, well, this is What I'm going to do, I'm going to make films, and that will be the work I do for the kingdom of God. So I decided I would go to Bible college to figure out my theology, and then film school. Um, I never made it to film school, and after three semesters at St. Paul Bible College in Minneapolis, my new friend Mike Naraki and I were both invited not to return. (laughs) We had failed chapel. And if you're wondering how exactly do you fail chapel, you don't go. It's pretty... (laughs) pretty much how it works. (laughs) It's funny, I told the last service. Now they don't do that anymore because they use out of policy, if you fail chapel two semesters in a row, you couldn't come back for the third semester. Now, like I I do a lot of chapel speaking, which is ironic, I I recognize, Um, but like if you go to Liberty University, chapel attendance is required, but if you miss chapel, they fine you so so see so they actually make money when you miss chapel instead of losing money when you miss much smarter so After three semesters of Bible college, I came back to Chicago and got a job in video production. And after a couple of years, I managed not only to learn the world of of low-budget video production, making training videos in in Chicago for places like Amoco and and Motorola and Montgomery Ward, but also managed to learn the the new budding world of computer animation. This was the late 1980s, so about seven years before uh, the first uh, computer animated film, Toy Story, came out. And therein, I found the tools to tell my stories, to make my difference for the kingdom. So, in 1993, with money I borrowed from family and friends, and the help of just two other guys, we produced the first episode of Veggie Tales, a rather odd little video starring vegetables that loved God. We didn't sell very many copies, but the people who bought them really, really liked it, and they told their friends who really it really liked it and they told their friends who really really liked it and before long we'd sold a million videos and then we sold two million and then three and then five and then ten million videos and we started getting letters as many as four hundred a day from as far away as Australia mostly from parents who wanted to tell us what a difference our work was making in the lives of their kids. God was using my efforts. Lives were being changed. My dream was coming true. So I decided it was time to get busier, to pedal faster, dream bigger. We could do even more good. We started producing books, records, computer games, toys, a live touring show, shows at theme parks. Dollywood, I got to meet Dolly. Even our own feature film. I figured if I could have this much impact just by making a few VHS cassettes... Think of the impact I could have if I built the next Disney. Of course, it occurred to me, that would make me the next Walt. I kind of liked the sound of that. It turns out, so did a lot of other people. I met with artists from places like DreamWorks and Disney and Warner Brothers, and many of them were Christians, and some of them said, hey, he could be the next Disney, and they wanted to sign up for the ride. So I hired all of them and put them all to work on all the projects I'd set into motion By the year 2000, we'd gone from three people on staff to more than 200. We were the biggest animation studio between the coasts. We'd been named one of the 10 studios to watch in worldwide animation by Animation Magazine, and I'd just been named in a PBS special, one of 10 people to watch in worldwide religion. In fact, the only two evangelical Christians that made the list were me and T.D. Jakes. I still think that would make a great buddy cop film. (laughs) Pretty good for a Bible college dropout. Right about then, everything started to go wrong. The management team I would put together to help build my Christian Disney had done a great job hiring a whole bunch of people and, and launching a whole bunch of projects, but they couldn't get along with me, and they couldn't get along with each other. We spent month after month arguing about seemingly simple things like whether or not to classify our core customer as Christian. And then, without warning, our sales stopped growing. I mean completely stopped growing. The company was seven years old at this point and sales had more than doubled every year for seven straight years. And suddenly we hit the ceiling and sales stopped growing. And this was very bad because many of the people that I had hired and relocated with their families from places like Glendale, California, and Burbank, and, and Orlando, Florida, where they used to have that Disney animation studio behind glass where you could go through and see them. Some of those guys had come and joined Big Idea and pulled their kids out of school and moved and found new churches. And, and some of these, in fact, most of these guys, I could only afford if sales had continued to grow. In April of 2000, I realized everything I had built was in very real danger of collapsing around me. I realized I had to do what I had promised myself I would never do. I had to let people go. From 210 to 180 to 140 down to 100, every round of layoffs broke my heart. Every face that had come in beaming with enthusiasm, excited to be part of something bigger than they were, Walked out stained with disappointment, with tears for a dream that for them had died way too soon. In the middle of that, we released our first feature film, Jonah, a Tales movie. And even though it was only supposed to do about this much at the box office, it was a small independent religious vegetable movie after all. I thought, okay, if it, if it does double that, then, then I can hire all these people back and I can, I can keep this dream going and, and keep this work alive. And, and God could do that, right? Because he could do anything. He could do that. But he didn't. And then the home video came out and I thought, well, that's really where all the money is in a kid's movie. So, so even though it was only supposed to, sell, supposed to sell about this many DVDs, I thought, if it sells twice that many, then, then I can keep this going and, and keep this dream alive. And God could do that but he didn't. And then in the middle of that, a former distributor took us to court, claiming we'd breached a verbal agreement. We knew we were in the right, but they refused to settle. And I had to spend two and a half weeks sitting in a federal courtroom in Dallas, Texas, wearing a suit and a tie, which for an artist is the third level of hell. (laughs) And as I sat there, listening to the opposing lawyer paint me as a liar, All I could think was, okay, God, I think I can still keep this together somehow. If you will just show up in this courtroom and show those jurors the truth in this situation. And he could have, but he didn't. The jury gave them everything they were asking for and more. $12 million in damages. And walking out of court that day, I knew that it was over. I knew that I was out. It was my third strike. I knew my company, Big Idea Productions, would have no choice but to file bankruptcy, and that everything I had built in 14 years, every character I had created, every story I had written, every song I had composed would get packed up in a box and sold at a public auction to the highest bidder to pay as much of our debt as possible." It was right about then that a a big Christian university called and asked if I would deliver their spring commencement address. And I had to say no, because I didn't know what I would say, because I had no idea how God could just stand back from something that was doing so much good and watch it fall apart. And then I started hearing his whispers. Actually, they'd started... About a year earlier, when I got an email from a woman I had never met, who I don't believe had ever met me. She started out by thanking me for my good work and congratulating me for my great success, but then ended up by saying, but keep an eye on your pride. And I thought, oh, who do you think you are? You don't even know me. The emails kept coming every month, every other month. I'm glad things are going so well for you. Of course, they weren't, but she didn't know that. But keep an eye on your pride. Then in the uh, spring of 2003, just before the court case went to trial, we had one last prayer meeting at Big Idea. The company was down to just 65 people from 210, and only 13 showed up because everyone was just so depressed. But the 13 of us prayed fervently for Big Idea, that God would save Big Idea, that that he would give Phil the wisdom to save Big Idea, to keep this dream alive. But in the middle of that, there was a woman who was an amazing prayer warrior. was one of the, the, the wives of one of our Disney artists. But she was silent throughout the whole prayer meeting. And then after it was over, and everyone else was leaving, she came up to me and said, I think God has something for me to say to you. She said, I don't think this is about God and big idea. I think this is about God and Phil. And before it's over, she said... I think you might have to say goodbye to all of us. I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. I, mean, I, didn't, I, didn't know, I didn't know what to do with that. How could it not be about big idea? Big idea is everything. It's the work I'm doing for Christ. It's my little car that I've been pedaling furiously for 14 years. It's how I'm changing the world. It's, it's, it's everything. I didn't know what to do with that. Then God got tired of whispering and decided it was time to just speak plainly. I told you about my great-grandfather's Bible conference in Iowa. Well, I hadn't been in a few years by then because, of course, I got busy and there's no time for a Bible conference. But that year, my mother was actually the director of the conference and she came to me and said, you should come this year. The speakers are going to be great. Just take a break. Come out to the Bible conference. And I almost did and I thought, no, I'm going bankrupt. That really takes it out of you. So she went out to Iowa, came back, and handed me a cassette tape. Do you remember cassette tapes? They were were like square CDs that rattle. Do you remember CDs? They were like shiny little MP3s that you could touch. (laughs) She came back and handed me a cassette tape and said, "Um, I think this is for you. It was a sermon preached by a, a family friend, a pastor named Richard Porter. And he started out by saying, what does it mean when God gives you a dream, and he shows up in it, and then without warning, the dream dies? What does it mean? And I thought, okay, you have my attention. (laughs) He went on to tell his story. At that time, he was a senior pastor of a large church in Vancouver. And for the prior 18 months, he had been leading a revival movement across the Vancouver area. And churches had come together, and they'd filled a sports stadium, and they had an amazing worship service, and the Holy Spirit moved, and and the leaders were planning the next one and the next one and the one after that. And he said he was pretty sure any day he was going to get a phone call, and it was going to be Christianity Today magazine saying, we hear there's something going on in Vancouver. Tell us all about it. And then without warning, 9-11 happened. And everyone got distracted, and the whole thing just died. And he was so burnt out, so physically exhausted that he literally could not get out of bed. His doctors told him to take 12 months off. His elders told him he could have nine. And day after day, he lay in bed wrestling with God, saying, if this is what it's like to work for you, I don't think I can do it anymore. In the middle of that dark time, he went to church with his daughter, and his daughter's pastor preached a sermon on the story of the Shunammite woman from Second Kings chapter four. Does everybody know that the Shunammite? We're gonna. Hey, you go. You want to come up and tell? No, okay. Okay. It's not not a top five Bible story, exactly. So I'll paraphrase. The Shunammite woman was a wealthy woman in Israel, and every time Elijah came through the area, she would cook for him. Apparently, she was a good cook because he started coming by a lot. So she goes to her husband one day and says, we should build a room on the roof for Elijah. Now he can come by and have a meal and take a nap. Every pastor's dream. Elijah is so appreciative that he calls her in one day and says, you've been so kind to me. What do you need? What can I do for you? And she says, I don't need anything. I have a home among my people. But Elijah's servant goes to him and says, well, sir, her husband is very old and she has no son, meaning in that day, before long, she would be destitute. So Elijah calls her in and says, a year from now, you will hold a son. And you can see how deep that longing is in her by her response, because she says, don't lie to your servant. She's not calling Elijah a liar. What she's really saying is, don't go there don't touch that don't even wake that dream up Elijah says no a year from now you will hold a son sure enough a year later she's holding a baby boy and you can just imagine how much she loves that boy because not only is he her son he's the dream he's this promise that God has given her and then one day as the boys growing up he goes to his father in the field and says dad my head hurts and his father like most fathers says go see your mother (laughs) so the boy goes to his mother crawls up in her lap, curls up, and dies. And there she is holding the dream God gave her dead in her arms. She takes the boy up to Elijah's room and she puts him on Elijah's bed, and then she goes to find Elijah. He sees her coming in the distance and calls out, is everything all right? Is your husband all right? Is your son all right? She says, everything's all right. But she tells him what's happened and he says, okay, take my staff, go with my servant, back to your son and lay my staff on your son. She says, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. He says, okay, I'll come too. So Elijah goes back with her, goes up to the room alone, he kneels and prays, and then he lies down on top of the boy, hand to hand, nose to nose, and the boy sneezes seven times and wakes up. Elijah brings him back down and hands him back to his mother. That is the story of the Shunammite woman. What is the point of that? (laughs) Why would God even put that poor woman through that exercise? What the young pastor said that day is that if God has given you a dream and the dream comes to life and then the dream dies it may be that God wants to see what is more important to you the dream or Him. The Shunammite woman's response is clear. She goes straight to Elijah. He's the man of God, and she wants to be as close to God as she can. When he says, is everything all right? Is your husband all right? Is your son all right? She says, everything's all right. But when she tells him what's happened, and he says, go back to your son with my servant, she says, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. She doesn't understand what's going on, but she's going to stay close to God no matter what. C.S. Lewis said, he who has God plus many things has nothing more than he who has God alone. And I can understand that if I think about it like this. He who has God plus a brand new car has nothing more than he who has God alone. Sure. Or he who has God plus a big fancy house has nothing more than he who has God alone. Okay. But if God is infinite and infinitely capable of meeting our needs just in himself, you can't add to infinite. Nothing plus God is more than God alone. So you have to put everything in that space. He who has God plus a warm, healthy marriage has nothing more than he who has God alone. And the one that knocked me down, he who has God plus an amazing ministry reaching millions of lives around the world has nothing more than he who has God alone. My friend Rick's conclusion at the end of his sermon on this cassette tape, sitting in my car in the garage as I'm listening to this, if God has given you a dream, and the dream comes to life, and God shows up in it, and then suddenly, without warning, the dream dies, it may be that God wants to see what is more important to you, the dream or him. And once he has seen this, you may get back your dream, or you may not, and you may live the rest of your life without it. But that'll be okay Because you'll have God. This truth washed over me like I was standing under a waterfall. Then I thought about Abraham. Abraham had a dream. He had a promise. God said, from you, I'll bring a great nation and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the fake beach set in the big church. And I'm sure that Abraham was excited, but somewhere inside him there was a voice saying, yeah, but I don't even have a son. So God said, okay, we'll start there. Along comes Isaac. And you know how much Abraham loved Isaac, because not only was he his son, he he was the dream, he was the promise, he was how God was going to change the world through him. And then one day God shows up and says, Abraham, what do you love more, me or your dream? And Abraham says, you, you, that's easy, you. Okay, put him on the altar, kill him. But he's my son. He's the he's the promise. He's how you're gonna use me to change the world. He's everything. He's, you know. Put him on the altar. Kill him. And what God learned about Abraham that day is that Abraham would let go of everything before he would let go of God. And God said, Okay, now I can use you. Suddenly, I found myself facing a God I had never heard about in Sunday school, a God that apparently wanted me to let go of my dreams. Why would God want us to let go of our dreams? Because anything I am unwilling to let go of is an idol, and I am in sin. I realized that that my good work had become an idol that defined me. Rather than finding my identity and my relationship with my creator, I was finding it in my intense drive to do good work. But wait a minute, aren't we supposed to do good works? Well, sure, as Paul says to the church in Ephesus, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Well, there you go. Let's get busy. God can't steer a parked car. Wait a minute, read the second half of the verse. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh, that's interesting. So God had in mind even before I was born the good work he wanted me to do. I don't have to run around spastically searching for it. I don't have to make things up. I don't have to craft a vision paper. I don't have to try a bunch of stuff and see what works. I just have to listen. The problem with the saying, God can't steer a parked car, is that while it is cute, it is not biblical. When people of great faith in the Bible don't know what God wants them to do, they don't do anything. They wait on him. Wait on him. That's a tough concept, especially for us Americans, especially for us Christian Americans. What's your vision for your ministry? Where do you want to be in five years? How big do you want this thing to get? Oh, real big, real big. All right, let's make a plan. Let's put it together. Let's make it happen. Let's get busy. I can't tell you how many kids I've met. I speak a lot at Christian colleges and, and do a lot of chapels, ironically. Um, but I, I do a lot of chapels. And I meet all these kids, and they're they're so excited. They're great Christian kids, and they're they're ready to go change the world. And they're just they've graduated from Bible college or film school or art school, and and, and they, they want to make their mark. They want to go write that hit Christian song or or make that hit Christian movie or start that hit Christian ministry that'll change everything, that'll save the world. You know, like Noah. He actually got to save the world. God gave him a vision for how to save the world. He came with blueprints and everything. But how old was Noah when God tapped him on the shoulder and gave him something big and specific to do? 500. He was 500 years old. So I always like to take these college kids and say, okay, so what did Noah do with the first 500 years of his life? No, we don't, we don't know. Don't say. We don't know. No, we know exactly what he did. Genesis 6:9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. What did Noah do for the first 500 years of his life? He walked with God. That's it? Yes, that's it. That's it. Exactly. I am growing increasingly convinced that if every one of these kids burning with passion to write that hit Christian song or make that hit Christian movie or start that hit Christian ministry to change the world would instead focus their passion on walking with God on a daily basis, the world would actually change. Why? Because the world doesn't learn about God by watching Christian movies. The world learns about God by watching Christians. Noah didn't hit the ground running and get busy pedaling his little car. He didn't spend 500 years randomly whacking things together out of gopher wood, saying, hey, I made kind of a rowboat, and this is a dinette, and this is kind of a helicopter-ish thing. Do you need one of those? No. Noah walked with God. He waited on God. And when God had something very big and very specific to do, He knew who to call because he knew who was listening. I've just recently learned how to wait on God. It is not in my nature. What does it look like for me? Well, after Big Idea Productions fell apart and all the leftover pieces, including many of my best friends, were swept up and moved by the new owners to Nashville, Tennessee, because apparently that's where all the Christians are supposed to live now. I spent some time hurting, just hurting, and I started reading the Bible. I'd taken a small office uh, near my house in, in the suburbs of Illinois, of, of Chicago, and every day, every morning, I'd walk down to my office and I, I would spend the morning just reading the Bible and praying. No agenda, no sermon to write, no, no video script to compose, just reading and praying. This went on for weeks. At first, I was very anxious to find the next big idea that God wanted me to to do, to conquer, to change the world with. But after a few weeks stretched into a few months, I discovered that I didn't care as much anymore. Eventually, it struck me that I no longer felt the need to write anything. I didn't need to have any impact at all. Whatever needs I had were being met by by the scripture I was reading and by the life of prayer I was developing. My passion was shifting from impact to God. It took several months, but what I started to feel I could only describe as a sense of, of giving up or, or, or dying, which scared me at first because I wasn't sure exactly what it was that was dying within me until one day it was clear. It was my ambition. It was my will. It was my hopes, my dreams, my life. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, involving a, a boy named Eustace who is so prideful, selfish, and greedy that he wakes up one day to discover he has literally turned into a dragon. Life as a dragon proves so lonely and his dragon skin so uncomfortable that he soon longs to be back with his friends. He longs to be human again. And in this scene, Aslan the lion leads Eustace the dragon down to a pool of water. Eustace slides into the pool to, to try to cool off his dragon skin and tries scratching at it, but he can only dislodge a few scales. And then Aslan says, lie down, this is going to hurt and with a terrible claw, Aslan digs deep into Eustace dragon's skin, ripping it wide open. It is the most painful thing Eustace has ever experienced. But when it is over, he stands up, a boy again, reborn. God could have spared me from the pain of Big Idea's collapse. He could have ridden in and saved the day. He could have spared me from the consequences of my own mistakes and missteps. But he didn't. And it wasn't about God and Big Idea. It was about God and Phil. My ambition My dreams, my misplaced sense of identity and value were dragged, kicking and screaming up onto the altar, and now they were dead, ripped apart like dragon skin. I realized this when I said to my wife one night, I don't want to write anything. I was ready to be done if that's what God wanted, to just rest in Him and let everything else fall away. And then a week or two later, I woke up in the middle of the night with a story in my head, a story that practically wrote itself, a story that was so simple, so pure, and yet captured such a deep spiritual truth that the first time I read it to my wife, she cried. And I thought, oh, is this how it's going to work now? The next week another idea came, and then another, and then another, and before long I had more ideas than I knew what to do with. Some ideas so small I could lose them in the cushions of the couch, and others so big they took my breath away. But each one was either derived from or confirmed during a time of waiting on God. Each one came without a hint of anxiety about how far it should go, how big it should be, how many lives it should touch. If big idea productions felt at times like rolling a giant boulder up a mountain, mountain. This felt like gliding on ice. I took a couple of my news stories to a Christian agent to see if they could become children's books. He suggested I spend a day at the whiteboard with his team talking it over. The first question they asked, where do you want to be in five years? I almost choked. They were asking me for my new vision, for my new ministry, for my next dream. After a long pause, I gave the only answer I could think of in the center of God's will? The guy at the whiteboard didn't know what to do with that one. I insisted that he write it at the top of the whiteboard so it would frame the rest of our discussion. You see, if I am a Christian, if I have given Christ lordship of my life, and I actually know what the word lordship means, where I am in five years is none of my business. My business is, Lord, what have you asked me to do today And am I doing it? And that has as much to do with how I treat the girl who's bagging my groceries at the checkout line as it does with any big world-changing ministry I could possibly imagine. Ten years have gone by now, and I'm still starting almost every day with at least a half an hour to an hour of reading the Bible, praying, and waiting on God. I've launched a new company, and my new company is called Jellyfish Labs. And the reason it's called Jellyfish is that jellyfish can't locomote. They can't choose their own path. A jellyfish can go squishy, squishy up. It can go squishy, squishy down. But it can't move laterally. So for a jellyfish to say, in five years, I'm going to be over there, is lunacy. That's a crazy jellyfish. Lock him up. All a jellyfish can do is stay in the current and trust that the current will carry it where it needs to be. And I realized in my Big Idea Productions days, I was kind of looking at myself like a big studly salmon, you know, like not only can I swim wherever I want to, I can swim upstream. In fact, I can jump waterfalls, I can dodge bears, I can just, you know, just look at me. And I was kind of going to God and saying, all right, God, I just need you to bless me and then stand back and watch. I'm older now. <laughs> I am not a big studly salmon. I am much closer to a brainless, spineless bag of goo. I don't know, have you ever seen a jellyfish on the beach? If you ever see a jellyfish on the beach? It looks, it's nothing. It's a smudge. It looks like a sandwich bag that someone left behind. The same jellyfish suspended in the current is beautiful. It had, that's where it gets its form and its purpose. And I realized I'm not a big studly salmon. I'm, I'm a jellyfish and I need to stay in the current of God's will and trust that his will will carry me where I need to be. So I picked jellyfish and I, so I put a jellyfish logo on my office door so every day I walk and say, Yep, that's me. I'm the sandwich bag. And as a result of not hanging on to, you know, this self-impression of I'm a big stud that can accomplish all of my dreams. Of letting go of those. God has actually led me into projects that I never would have chosen for myself. And they're they're amazingly fun. First of all, he completely cleared my plate of VeggieTales, which had turned into this vegetable-shaped monster that was consuming my, my whole life. I was spending hours and meetings about uh, VeggieTales gardening gloves at Walmart instead of actually writing something new for kids. And he took all that away and said, all right, let's start again. What do kids need today? And I just finished spending five years creating a project that you can look up online. It's called What's in the Bible. And it's a kids' video series that walks kids all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It mentions every single book in the Bible, answers big questions like what's with all the weird rules in Leviticus? You know, uh, I'm supposed to be kind, but I'm also not supposed to eat bacon. Why do we have to pay attention to some and not to others? Uh, Why was it okay for the Israelites to kill all those Canaanites? That doesn't seem so hot. We ask the questions that knock kids' faith out from under them when they get to high school or college. But by asking them when they're in third and fourth grade, we actually prepare them to defend their faith. So it's 13 hours of of video. It's called What's in the Bible. Uh, You can check it out at whatsinthebible.com. That was the commercial message. Sorry about that. <laughs> but it's the coolest thing. We've, and, and because so many, half of adult Protestants in America today can't define the word grace, which George Gallup pointed out was kind of central to the Protestant Reformation. Look it up. It was. Uh, that most pastors have no idea how, how little most Americans know about Christian faith. So if we can take kids through it in an organized way, we can raise a generation that knows what it means to live out their faith in front of a watching world. Then also as I've been traveling and speaking at colleges, which I never thought I would do because I I tell funny stories to three-year-olds, not 18-year-olds, but I noticed that that college kids today really like a sense of humor with their Christian worldview, that they're tired of the model of the Pat Robertsons and the Jerry Falwells and the the elderly men that are always angry. They don't like that. They like Stephen Colbert, they like Jon Stewart, they like funny men that are pretending to be angry. It's a different thing. Um, And so I started a podcast. It's called the Phil Vischer Podcast. And a friend of mine who's an editor at Christianity Today and I talk about current events. We kind of do the John Stewart, Stephen Colbert thing every week. But we're talking about gay rights. We're talking about transgender issues. We're talking about atheism. We're talking about all these things. But with much more of a sense of humor than uh, kids are used to hearing. Anyway, um, if you have college kids or high school kids in your life, go to philvisher.com and you can check that out too. Neither of those projects would I have planned because that didn't seem, that wasn't, I wanted to be Walt Disney. Walt Disney didn't do a podcast. He built theme parks. I wanted to build theme parks, but letting go of my dreams was actually key in finding God's plan for my life, which brought joy. Why is waiting on God so vital? If I'm not waiting on God, I cannot be obedient to him because I will never know what he wants me to do. I need to put my nose in his word every day. I need to put my knees on the ground before him in prayer every day. And I need to be quiet enough to hear his whispers, whether they come directly from him or through emails from a woman I have never even met. If I'm so busy pedaling my little car that I cannot hear his directions, I am useless to him. And even if I have his directions, if I make them more important than him, I am useless to him. So what's the point? The first is very simple. God loves you. And not because of what you could do for him or even because of who you could become if you try really, really hard. He just loves you because he made you. In fact, he loves you even when you aren't doing anything at all. Secondly, when it is time to do something for God, and that time will come quickly if you're listening, don't worry about outcomes. Don't worry about the 30% more or the 20% less or the fastest growing whatever in the tri-county area. That's God's business. Your business is simply to do what he asks. And finally, and I am very serious when I say this, beware your dreams for dreams make dangerous friends. We all have them, longings for a better life, a healthy child, a happy marriage, rewarding work. But dreams are, I have come to believe, misplaced longings, false lovers. Why? Because God is enough, just God. And he isn't enough because he can make all your dreams come true. No, you've got him confused with Santa or Merlin or Oprah. The God who created the universe is enough for us even without our dreams, without the better life, the healthy child, the happy marriage, the rewarding work. God was enough for the martyrs facing lions and fire, even when the cavalry didn't show up and save the day, even when the lions and fire won. And God is enough for you. But we can't discover the truth of that statement when we are clutching on our dreams. We need to let them go. Let ourselves fall. Give up. As terrifying as it sounds, you'll discover that falling feels a lot like floating and falling into God's arms, relying solely on His power and His will for your life. Well, that's where the fun starts. That's where you'll find the abundant life that Jesus promises. The abundant life that doesn't look anything like evangelical overload. Christianity isn't about rules and regulations and it isn't about how much you can do for your church or your neighborhood or even your world. Christianity is abundant life in Christ. It is new life. It is peace, joy, love, kindness, the whole rest of the list. It's new life. We've forgotten that. In 2003, my dream died, and I discovered, once all the noise had faded away, what I'd been missing all along. The impact God has planned for us does not occur when we're pursuing impact. It occurs when we're pursuing God. In the words of the psalmist, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for the megachurch I hope to plant. So, my soul pants for the million DVDs I hope to sell. No. So, my soul pants for you, O oh God. Not for the impact I could have, nor the megachurch I could build, nor the mark I could make on the world. Not for the happy family, the healthy child, the meaningful work. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. Let it go. Give it up. Let it die. Let Christ shred your dragon skin and lead you into a whole new life. Trust me, it's worth it. Let me pray. Oh Lord God, thank you for the hearts in this room. They come to this place to be equipped to run the good race, to fight the good fight, to someday hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. But let us never confuse the work we do for you with our relationships with you. Let us learn how to wait, how to rest in you. Let all your children in this room find their peace and their contentment and their joy in you and you alone. Amen. I'll be out here afterwards if anyone wants to come over and say hi. Thank you.